We are in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, verses 1 through 16, the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, if you want to take out your copy of Scripture and turn there, and we're going to read that in a few moments. Um, now, we're continuing in this, um, this sermon series through Ecclesiastes We're slowly working our way through the book, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, and hopefully you've been getting kind of a a fuller picture of what the preacher means by his refrain of referring to everything as vanity, vanity. Uh, We saw in the beginning of the series, in the beginning of this book, his sort of big idea for the book is that everything is vanity. The entirety of the book, then, is just sort of unpacking what the preacher means by that and why he believes everything to be vanity. And uh, just to review uh, a little bit, uh, we saw on our very first Sunday in this book that the word translated as vanity in the ESV, or perhaps you have another translation that says meaningless or something along those lines. Um, But this word that we see over and over again uh, it is, is, it's translated as vanity, but uh, we're actually going to see it several times even this morning. Uh, but the word translated as vanity is actually this Hebrew word, uh, hevel, hevel. And we saw that the word vanity is not actually the, the, the most literal translation of the word, which is okay. Uh, but the word hevel literally means vapor, mist. Um, yeah, actually, if you could just put up the, the graphic, uh, the series graphic slide again, the previous, there it is. All right. So you see he's kind of immersed in this, in this fog, and uh, that's not Aaron Talbot, by the way. Um, yeah. Um, but it, and he's exhaling in this kind of cold weather. You see this vapor, this mist, or maybe he's vaping. Maybe, um, you know, we get it, you vape, right? Uh, maybe he's got a vape. Uh, machine around his neck. You just can't see it. But basically what's coming out of his breath right there, what's coming out of his mouth right there is hevel. See, it's kind of foggy. He's exhaling. This mist, this vapor is coming out of his mouth. That's what we call, that's what the Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrew word hevel means. It's just kind of this, this vapor, this, this mist, this smoke. That's literally what the word means. And yet you can kind of tell that it's an illustration of what the preacher is actually communicating, which is wonderful because one of the benefits of using kind of more poetic language such as this, figurative language such as this, is that you can communicate kind of more complex, multidimensional ideas with fewer words. Uh, And that's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing. Uh, In saying that life is hevel, he's saying kind of several different things all at once, as we see, as we kind of walk through the book. Uh, first, we, we, we see that he's saying that life is fleeting, right? Life is, is fleeting. Life is short. It's brief. It's a flash in the pan. Uh, you're here one day. You're gone the next. Um, you exhale into the cold air, and you see vapor for a moment, but then it kind of dissipates. It's gone. Life is fleeting. And not only is life fleeting, he's also saying that life is futile. Life is, is futile. That's kind of what they're getting at when they translate it as vanity. There's a kind of futility to life. And uh, he's not saying that there's no meaning, that there's no purpose to life. Um, he is sure that there is a meaning and a purpose to life, as we saw when we covered Ecclesiastes 3. But as far as he can tell, 
just by his mere observation of life in a fallen world, he can't figure out what it is. He can't figure out the meaning and the purpose for his existence. It's obscure, it's a riddle, it's elusive. Again, you breathe out into the cold air. Try to grab that mist. You can't grab onto it. It's elusive. It's futile. And then, because of the fleeting and futile nature of life, he also wants us to see how frustrating it is, how frustrating life is. Life is very frustrating. There's a great deal of monotony in life. You deal with the same things every single day. There's a great deal of difficulty in life. There's a great deal of suffering in life. And then you die. And the preacher finds this so maddening, so problematic, so frustrating. And in our text this morning, he sort of just presents to us a a catalog of situations and affairs in this world that he's observed that have caused him deep and profound frustration. You might call this text a a catalog of frustrations. He just lists and describes four kind of predicaments, four observations, things he's observed in this fallen world that have caused him deep consternation, deep frustration in life, all to make his case for this big idea that life is hevel. All so that we might join him in his frustration. He wants us to join him in his frustration So that, as we said in the beginning, that we might be depressed into dependence upon God. That's the goal of this book. He wants to depress us into dependence upon God. And so let's read with that goal in mind. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're going to read all of chapter 4, Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. Let's listen with reverence and joy, for this is the word of our God and King. Again, I saw all the oppression, all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." Then I saw all, that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who had no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity 
and the striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the sort of big idea that we're going to be exploring this morning is that the futility of this world is made plain by its many immense problems, but Christ came to redeem the world. The futility of this world is made plain by its many immense problems, but Christ came to redeem the world. And we'll unpack that by looking at the preacher's catalog of frustrations a problem of oppression, a problem of rivalry, the problem of loneliness, and the problem of government. Oppression, rivalry, loneliness, government. And first we see the problem of oppression. He says in verses 1 to 3, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Here we see the the preacher's frustration and distress over the oppression of the weak and vulnerable at the hands of the powerful and elite. And it's, it's unclear... Whether or not he has a, a specific example of oppression in mind, of course, you know, you don't really need to have a specific example in mind. If you just look around you, if you watch the news, you read your social media feed and what have you, you'll have plenty of examples of oppression to frustrate you. In the Old Testament, the, the word oppression or oppress or oppressed is typically associated with some sort of financial injustice that the powerful and elite commit against the weak and and vulnerable, much of the time in particularly violent and kind of forceful ways. Uh, We find this word in Leviticus 6, 2 through 5, associated with robbery and extortion, sort of financial deception. Uh, We find it in Deuteronomy 24, 14, in relation to cheating the poor out of their money and possessions. Uh, We find it in association with the, the abuse of orphans and widows and immigrants in Ezekiel 22, And it's often associated with violence against the innocent, as we see in Jeremiah 22, 17. And, uh, you know, of course, these these problems, these sort of problems continue to this day. As we discussed last week, we live in a world wherein the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, often because of the decisions and the manipulations of the powerful and rich. We live in a world of predatory lenders and sweatshops. We live in a world of abusive husbands and abusive parents. We live in a world, even in recent history, we're in Sudan, uh, where where more than one million children have been killed and raped and displaced and traumatized and endured the, the loss of their parents and families. We live in a world of sex slavery and human trafficking. We live in a world wherein the, the unborn are killed in what should be the safest place in the world for them. We live in a world where roughly 11 Christians are killed every day for professing faith in Christ. We live in a world wherein young black men are gunned down in the streets by those who vowed to protect and serve and who often 
walk away with impunity. We live in a world where the poor are exploited in their poverty rather than helped, and where the weak and vulnerable are silenced rather than heard. And what makes matters worse for the preacher here is the problem of isolation among the poor and oppressed. He observes that there are some that are oppressed in this world, and yet they don't even have family or friends or community to comfort them. They're all alone in their oppression and in their grief. As I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of the late Richard Wormbrand. He was a a Romanian Christian. He wrote the book, Tortured for Christ, to to tell about his experience of imprisonment in, in Romania for his faith. In 1948, he he publicly spoke out about the evils and the oppressions of, of the government in his home of Romania, and they put him in prison for 14 years. For 14 years, they put him in prison. And while he was there, they tortured him, they burned him, they locked him in an ice box for hours on end, they mutilated his body. And that's not all. He, he suffered horrendous punishments and pain, but, but that's not all. In, during his stint in prison for 14 years, for three of those years, three straight years, They put him in solitary confinement. They put him in a prison cell 12 feet underground. There were no lights, there were no windows, no sounds. The guards that would bring him his occasional meals, they would wear felt on on the bottom of their shoes so that they didn't make any sound. During his oppression and mistreatment, he was in utter isolation. He had no one there, no one present, no one with him to comfort him. You can feel it. You can feel the, 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 the weight of the preacher as he writes this here in Ecclesiastes 4. And I think this may be something that we need to slow down and consider because I think, I think as, as, as modern people, we struggle with feeling the weight of calamities and genocides and oppressions such as this in day-to-day life. Maybe it's because we're inundated with so much information every single day, every single hour, we don't simply have the, the energy or the capacity to really feel the weight of that which should grieve us. But if you're not careful, you can walk through life calloused, unmoved, undisturbed by that which should disturb and grieve you. I remember a while back coming across this, uh, this thing that went viral on Twitter of a young lady taking a kind of frivolous, flippant selfie in front of Auschwitz. And I kind of looked into it this last week, and, and um, I found that that's not actually all that of a rare thing. I found selfies of people at the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin taking flippant selfies. I even found pictures of people doing different kind of yoga moves or parkour moves or juggling on top of the concrete slabs that emulate the tombs of Holocaust victims. It's flippant, it's irreverent. It's a tragic example of something all too common, a generation totally out of touch with the reality and weightiness that we live in a fallen, broken world full of oppression and suffering. That's a piece of application for us from this text. We need to feel the weight of tragedy and oppression in this world. Join the preacher in his frustration. The next item in the preacher's catalog of frustrations is, is that of rivalry and work is so often the cousin of oppression, since jealousy over the possessions and pleasures of others is often what drives oppression and injustice, and so it seems a natural transition. And of course, we should say on the front end, 
that the Bible largely has a very positive view of work, that work is actually God's idea. Work is a gift from God given to humanity so that we might glorify Him through our serving of our fellow man. That's why work was given in the first place. All work, all work, is all legitimate work, that is, be it what we often deem secular or sacred, is good and ordained by God for His glory and for the good of our neighbor. And yet the preacher observes that so often humanity doesn't seek to bring glory to God and good to neighbor through work. Instead, it becomes a point of division and contention because humanity approaches work from a place of rivalry and dissension. Look at what he says in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The preacher observes that much of what drives our success and skill and work, so much of what motivates us to work and toil, is really that of envy and rivalry, coveting and competition. So much of what drives success and skill in our labor is simply keeping up with the Joneses. This may be part of the reason why many have been so successful in the system of capitalism, because it, it sort of appeals to this kind of rivalry, this envy of neighbor present in our hearts. Of course, capitalism doesn't, didn't create that posture, but it's just a, a, a modern means of expressing it. It's fallen humanity long before the advent of capitalism. We've long set ourselves at, at odds with our neighbors, envied them, made them our rivals. We envy the success of our neighbors as they climb the social ladder or the corporate ladder at work. We envy them for their possessions, for their financial gain. We envy them for their house that they own and the car that they drive, the clothes that they wear. We envy, the preacher says, and because we envy, we work all the harder and increase in skill, all so that we might be better than the competition, more praised by others, possess more than our neighbors. You may remember a Cadillac commercial from a few years ago, which kind of captures the spirit of this text, starring Neil McDonough. Kind of walking through his beautiful and ornate home and yard and by his swimming pool. And he's, he's just talking to the camera, kind of conversing with the viewer about why Americans are so successful and driven. He says this. He says, why do we work so hard? For what? For this? For stuff? Other countries, they work, they stroll home, stop by the cafe. They take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy driven, hard working believers, that's why. Those other countries think we're nuts. Whatever. Were the Wright brothers insane? Bill Gates, Les Paul, Ali? Were we nuts when we pointed to the moon? That's right, we went up there. And you know what we got? Bored. So we left. Got a car up there and left the keys in it. Know why? Because we're the only ones going back up there, that's why. But I digress. It's pretty simple. You work hard, create your own luck, and you got to believe anything is possible. And as for all that stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. And that's, I mean, we recognize that's gross, right? That's gross. But don't you see, the preacher is saying that's hevel. That is hevel in striving after the wind. It's futile. It's, it's foolish. Why? Well, because 
all those possessions, whatever leverage you get on your neighbor through your rivalry, it doesn't actually fulfill you. It doesn't actually satisfy you. Instead, it's just futile because you're going to lose it anyways. All those goods you accumulate through success and skill and work are that which moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. And you can't carry it into the grave. So you've got to leave it behind to someone else. And who knows whether or not they'll steward it well or enjoy it. It's all hevel. It's all striving after the wind. It's foolishness. So what do we do then? Well, the preacher, he doesn't want you getting the wrong idea. You may read this and you may start thinking, you know what? There's no point. I'm just going to drop out of the rat race, quit my job. I'm going to lose all ambition. I'm not going to participate in this toil so preoccupies the people of this world. The preacher wants you to know that's not the answer. Okay? He, he, and so he cautions against those who might see the answer to rivalry at work as just not simply working or being lazy. And so he says with this proverb in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, a, a fool will choose to be lazy and idle. That's what he means, the fool folds his hands. To fold your hands here means to just be idle, to be lazy, to not work, to sit idly by twiddling your, your thumbs, so to speak. And the preacher says that this laziness, this idleness is just really a, a form of self-cannibalism. You'll eat your own flesh. And Proverbs 6, 9, and 10 gets at the same idea. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want, like an armed man. Don't be lazy, he cautions. Yet at the same time, he also cautions against overworking. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls, two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. You see, there's, there's a need for balance. Rather than two handfuls of rest and quietness and therefore eating your own flesh, Rather than two handfuls of toil, try to have a hand of quiet and rest and a hand of toil. Work hard, but don't overdo it. Be content with what you have, and don't be compulsively compelled by rivalry and envy. Find the right balance in work and rest, the preacher wants you to see. The next problem the preacher observes in his catalog of frustration is that of loneliness, which is also a natural Follow-up rivalry so often, so tragically leads to division, a kind of breakdown of community, and division and a breakdown of community leads to loneliness. Loneliness. The preacher says, starting in verse 7, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So he sort of starts with this brief uh, description of someone he's observed in his life personally, who worked hard and accumulated wealth and possessions, but he was all alone. He didn't have anyone to call his own, no spouse, no siblings, no children, no friends. He's tragically and sadly all alone in this world. He was successful. He was skilled, but when he went home at night, he had no one to share in his joys, no one to help in his trials, no one to share in his success and victories, no one to comfort him in the midst of his frustrations and difficulties. 
This is tragic, as the preacher goes on to explain, because we, we were made as relational creatures. We're image bearers. We're social creatures. We're, we're image bearers of the triune God who is himself community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. Therefore, we need others to experience part of what we were created for as human beings. We need others for the sake of comfort, for the sake of security, for the sake of companionship. And the preacher goes on to say as much in several Proverbs here. It says, starting in verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is left alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. For the sake of security, the sake of comfort, for the sake of companionship, we need others. We need families. We need the church. We need friendships. We need relationships. And this is a truth as old as Adam. In the beginning, God created Adam as a lone, solitary creature. Mind you, this is before the fall of humanity. This is before the sin of our first parents. This is before the experience of a sin-cursed earth. And the Lord saw that something was not quite right. Now, Adam was alone. He says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. We're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to go it alone. We need one another. We need family. We need friends and brothers and sisters. And so when the preacher looks around and sees such loneliness, when he sees people with no one to call their own, when he sees the successful businessman who's all alone with his wealth, when he sees the the elderly woman who spends her nights at home alone, when he sees the young child wandering the streets without mother or father, he's distressed. This is a problem. And let me say this, if loneliness was a problem in the preacher's day, it's an epidemic in ours. Evidently, by the preacher's observation here, we can conclude that loneliness has always been a problem, but it's all the more intensified in our day. Recent studies have found that many Americans suffer from loneliness and to such a degree that it affects their mental, their emotional, even their physical health. Uh, Recently, a, 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 a... There was a study done by Cigna Behavioral Health, and they found that 46% of Americans categorized themselves, considered themselves to be lonely. 47% reported feeling left out. They call these epidemic levels of loneliness. It's a problem. I remember coming across a story a couple years ago which demonstrates this. It was in July of 2018, and the Dayton Daily News reported a story about someone finding a a dead body in a Kettering home not far from here. It was the body of a man who died. He was 66 years old when he died. His name was Nelson Holford. And he died from complications associated with his cardiovascular and diabetic issues. And obviously, that's tragic in and of itself. But what makes this particular story so particularly tragic is that Although they found his body in 2018, he had died in 2007. His body remained in his home for almost 11 years. He died in 2007. And for 
almost 11 years, no one checked in on him. No one came looking for him. No one noticed that he was gone. No one. Think about that. You die and no one comes looking for you. No one buries you. No one even knows to care. How lonely is that? Loneliness is a problem that makes plain the fallenness of this world. And the last problem the preacher bemoans is the problem of government. Of course, this last problem is not a problem in and of itself. Government, as we learn from Romans 13, is a gift from God to humanity in order to protect human life, to carry out justice, to keep order. Yet governments and politicians also carry their own sort of problems, don't they? He names two here. One is the problem of foolish leadership. There are governing authorities who are simply foolish. And the other is that governments, even good ones, they never last. Not really. Look at what he says, starting in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. So he starts with observing this, this particular story about an individual who had a rags-to-riches kind of story. It was a man who started out life poor, and even at one point ended up in prison. And yet while he was poor and imprisoned, he was wise. And by his wisdom, he rose to the top. He ascended to the throne, taking the highest position of authority in his kingdom. Now the preacher, he's not talking about Joseph and Egypt, but it does sort of remind you of Joseph's story, doesn't it? Joseph was kidnapped and sold into slavery by his brothers. And eventually he ended up in prison in Egypt. But because of Joseph's wisdom and the skill given to him by God, he ended up becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man. This individual that the preacher is observing here has a similar story, only he didn't just become the king's right-hand man, he became the king himself. And yet what so often happens to those who acquire, who acquire wealth and power happened to him, he became foolish. He became proud and stupid. He no longer sought or considered the counsel of others. He kept his own counsel. And so he, he led his kingdom foolishly, making foolish decisions, corrupt decisions. As we know all too well, nations suffer when they have foolish leaders. And democracy hasn't protected us from having foolish leaders in the White House or the Capitol building. Our nation has felt the effects of foolish leadership. We will in the future as well. And yet, not all political leaders are foolish. There are times, maybe they're rare, but there are times where we are led by leaders who are just, who have integrity, who are wise. But the preacher says they don't last. Look at verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. There are good governments in the world. There are good kings and politicians. But eventually their stint in office comes to a close. Eventually, their reign comes to an end, and they die, and off into the mist of history they go, only to be forgotten and unknown in the years to come. 
The application here is simple. Do not place your trust and your hope in politicians, in political parties, in earthly governments. If you do, you are bound to be disappointed. For even there, fools dwell. And even when a wise leader comes along, his or her reign will inevitably come to an end and a fool will come after him. The futility of this world is made plain by its many immense problems, oppression, rivalry, loneliness, foolish politicians, fleeting governments, and more. But my friends, here's the good news, is that Christ came to redeem the world. And here's part of the good news about that. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His reign is an everlasting reign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right now, he is risen and on the throne, and no one will knock him off. He is the one and only sovereign of the universe, and you never have to worry about him being foolish. Or as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.24, he's the personification of the wisdom of God. He is wisdom itself. So you can always trust him to do what is right. You can always trust him to do what is best. You can always trust him to do what is just. You can always trust him to do what is in our best interest as his kingdom people. And how do we know that? Because of what he's done for us already. He came into this world, into this world of heaven for us and for our salvation. To rescue us from the futility and frustrations of this world. He came to live the life that we should have lived. And he came to die the death that we deserve to die in our place. And if you want to talk about feeling lonely, he was truly alone. Prior to his crucifixion, we find him praying in the garden. And then he goes to his crucifixion to be crucified and executed at the hands of oppressive and foolish political leaders. And his friends, they can't even stay awake with him while he's praying. And when the soldiers do come to arrest him, all of his friends abandon him and forsake him so that he's left to face the cross without anyone there to comfort him. And in a way that I'm not even quite sure, honestly, how to describe, on the cross we even find that God the Father forsook him since Christ calls out in Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Why did he willingly subject himself to such a painful and lonely death? He did so in your place, taking on the penalty of sin that you deserve, all so that you would be reconciled to God and belong to his eternal kingdom, so that you'd never truly be alone. And he not only reconciled us to himself as our God and king, but he's also reconciled us to one another. He saved us into his kingdom, into his people, into his family. As Ephesians 2.14 tells us, he has made us one and broken down the dividing wall of hostility, all so that what used to divide us has been torn down through his death and resurrection. He's taken away our need for rivalry. Because we don't see ourselves as being in competition with one another for earthly resources and goods, but as co-heirs of his eternal kingdom. Therefore, instead of rivalry, we share our lives and our goods with one another for the sake of one another's good and flourishing. 
And additionally, because we've been saved into his family, we no longer need to be lonely. It's not to say we'll never be lonely, never feel lonely, but it's not necessary because we've been given one another in Christ. We've been given a family. We've been given brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been given a people for whom we can work and care. We've been given companions that will pick us up when we fall down. We've been given people to strengthen us so that the enemy might not prevail against us. He's given us a family to comfort us when we suffer and when we're oppressed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's not all. One day he is going to return. He's going to return for us, and he's going to end all suffering. He's going to end all the problems of this corrupt world, and he's going to make this world completely and totally new. And when that day comes, there will be no more oppression, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin, no more injustice. Instead, there will be never-ending comfort as he wipes away every tear from every eye, from every one of his people. And we will rejoice in our king forever and ever. And friends, the futility of this world is made plain by its many immense problems, but Christ came to redeem it. He came to gather up the hevel of this world and breathe new life into it. He will make all things new and we will be his people and he will be our God forevermore. The realities of this world may be depressing here and now, but let them depress you into dependence upon God. Look to him, trust in him, hope in him. He will not disappoint. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table This meal of the new creation remind us that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And because he's alive, help us to be strengthened through our communion with him and help us to look forward to the day when he returns to make all things new and we get to eat this meal with him in the new heaven and new earth. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.